The main sins of, of President Trump with regard to executive power have not been law-breaking, it's been norm-breaking. Welcome to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. This week, we welcome Jack Goldsmith. Listen to the discussion between Matthew Stevenson and Jack that covers the recent book, After Trump, that Jack wrote together with Bob Bauer, and how to address corruption risk in upcoming president's administrations. Jack emphasizes the importance of norms for preventing misuse of office. If you want to find out more about the link between norms and corruption, we recommend the recent book on the subject edited by Annika Engelbert and Ina Kubbe. We link to it and Jack's book in the show notes. But now, here are Jack and Matthew. We hope you enjoy the episode. Greetings and welcome to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. Uh, this is Matthew Stevenson, and I'm particularly thrilled uh, this episode to be joined by my Harvard Law School colleague, Jack Goldsmith. Jack has uh, been a professor at Harvard for many years. Uh, he's also served at high levels in the United States government, most prominently as the Assistant Attorney General, heading the Office of Legal Counsel under the George W. Bush administration. He's the author of many academic papers and books, most recently and most relevant for the discussion today, uh, the book After Trump, co-authored with uh, Bob Bauer, who was the White House counsel under the Obama administration. The book, which is fascinating and proposes a whole series of legal reforms to address institutional legal weaknesses in the U.S. system in the wake of the Trump administration, is not specifically or narrowly concerned with corruption-related issues. It very much touches on those issues. It also engages more broadly in topics of interest to the anti-corruption community concerning the relationship between the chief executive and law enforcement, the mechanisms that exist or don't exist for holding senior powerful political officials accountable, uh, and many related topics. So, Jack, thank you very much for taking time out of your schedule to join us today. Thank you, Matthew, for having me. So, Perhaps maybe the best place to start is with the question of what we've learned from the four years of experience with the Trump administration about the strengths and weaknesses of existing U.S. laws and institutions for addressing malfeasance in office of a variety of types in the highest levels of the U.S. government. I think many of us, especially those of us who study international corruption, Uh, from the United States maybe had thought before all this that the U.S. was exceptional or we were somehow immune to the problems that afflicted many, many other countries. And in many of us, the Trump administration has been a bit of a rude awakening. From your perspective and the perspective advanced by you and your co-author in the book, what, what did we learn from the last four years about where U.S. institutions work well and where they've fallen short? Sure. That's a great question. And I'll, I'll give the first cut at an answer and then we can go in different ways. So I think at the broadest perspective, one of the things we learned, certainly I've been a presidential scholar for 25 years or so, and I never fully appreciated how much regulation of the executive branch depends on norms rather than legal prescriptions. And let me just explain what I mean by norms. I'm talking about not a statute, not a constitutional provision, non-legal prescriptions that describe the way executive branch officials should behave but aren't enforceable by legal sanctions. 
And there are a couple of reasons why so much of executive authority was is governed by norms. One is under the U.S. constitutional system, Article II vests the executive power in the president. So there are many things that, at least under standard constitutional law, it's hard for Congress to regulate by statute. And so if we're going to regulate certain behaviors, it often can be done uh, most robustly and most successfully through executive branch regulation. Another reason is simply because norms are somewhat more flexible. And in some contexts, we wanted to have flexibility for exceptional cases and the like. But one of the things we've learned, I mean, the truth is, you might disagree with this, but Trump, he's tried to violate a lot of laws and he uh, has claimed immunity to a bunch of laws. But the main sins of of President Trump with regard to executive power have not been law breaking. It's been norm breaking. And I can give you several examples. Uh, You know, one is the way that he has intervened in ongoing executive branch prosecutions and investigations, either to favor himself when he tried to stop the Mueller investigation or to try to harm his his enemies when he um, urges the Justice Department to prosecute his enemies. Another concrete example, and I think more central to the interest of your audience, financial conflict of interest rules. There's a statutory prescription against conflict of interest, but it doesn't specifically apply to the president. Every president going back to the 70s has complied as a matter of norms with these conflict of interest rules. Antonin Scalia, when he was the head of the Office of Legal Counsel, issued an opinion saying, well, the conflict of interest statute doesn't specifically apply to the president, therefore it doesn't cover the president. But of course, every president would want to apply with this law as a matter of norms. And that's been true of every president until Trump. So I could give you other examples. We could talk about other examples. But the main thing we've learned is that the executive is was regulated in some very important areas by norms rather than laws that seem to work. These grew out mostly from the 1970s reforms, and they seem to work for 50 years, but they definitely stopped working during the Trump period. So I want to get to more of a discussion of Trump and his violation of norms and how to respond, but maybe a preliminary question that precedes Trump that I don't think the books maybe speaks to quite as directly, but I'm curious, in your view or in your sense, how do these norms get established and trenched? Because again, there are many countries in the world where abuse of power by the president or prime minister or those who control the levers of government is a really serious concern. And there are ways to try to address that through reforming laws and creating new institutions if the U.S. experience suggests that laws and institutions, though incomplete, are, are though important or incomplete, and you need to establish these norms of appropriate behavior, can you say a little bit more about the process of how these norms yep. get established and entrenched, and what are the political incentives that worked for apparently roughly 50 years for people not to violate those norms when it's in their interest to do so? Yep. So it's a great question. We don't address it in the book. It's actually, as you know, a very deep and hard question, and I'll get to that, but I just want to preface it by saying one thing that I should have said in response to the last answer, and then I'll answer this. I think norms have been proven not to work at the presidential level. Trump is shameless and brazen and uh, immoral or amoral, and he's just not interested in these things, and he doesn't care about the political costs. But I do think the norms have had much more purchase, and we can, again, come back to this. I just wanted to lay it out before I answer your question. I do think they have had much more purchase at the level below Trump. And I and I can give you, let me just get a couple of examples out on the table and then I'll answer your question about where they come from and how they work. So for example, you know, if you read volume two of the Mueller report, special counsel Robert Mueller's report, volume two is about Trump's ostensible obstruction of justice. It's a remarkable thing because there are 
10, 12 examples of Trump trying to get his most senior political subordinates and closest aides to get rid of Mueller and either to stop Mueller or to fire Mueller. And they wouldn't do it. The White House counsel wouldn't do it. The Justice Department wouldn't do it. And we don't know why they wouldn't do it. But this overt interference by the president with an ongoing investigation concerning himself is a clear violation of norms. And that probably had something to do with it. It may have also had to do with the obstruction of justice statute. It may have been that they were worried about the politics and the question about how that relates to norms is a hard question. But I I do want to say that a lot of the norm breaking at the presidential level was not carried out in the subordinate level. So norms were broken by the president and they weren't, didn't operate perfectly below that, but they had much more purchase and in fact, one of the lessons, I think, is that they work remarkably well, given this norm-breaking president. Okay, so your question, it's a, it's a great question. I don't have a wonderful answer. I mean, the question about what the mechanism is, about how norms operate, is a deep one. And there are many models, instrumental models and models of culture about what makes them work. I can give you this basic story, but I'm not sure it's, it's completely satisfactory. After Watergate, The Watergate experience was hugely uh, traumatizing for the country, obviously, and especially for the Department of Justice. And um, there was an effort made after Watergate to make the Department of Justice, to take the Department of Justice away from the presidency, to make it an independent agency, so to speak. That effort failed. I think it probably wasn't constitutional, but there were some markers laid down in the first two administrations after Nixon left in the Ford administration, especially the Carter administration. And carried out by very prominent good governance attorneys, generals Levy and uh, Griffin Bell under Carter, Levy under Ford. And they set down these markers of independence and detachment from the White House, became part of the operating system of those institutions for six years. And they kept being replicated. And they kept being replicated. So I'm not clear what the incentives are. I actually think these norms probably serve the presidency pretty well over the run of cases. So there may be a self-interest story, but for whatever reason, it became part of, and I felt it when I was there of the justice department, that there are certain things. I mean, when, when the white house, we get very nervous about talking to the justice department in the Bush administration, they, we would avoid the conversation. It was unspoken when it came to some ongoing investigation. And I don't know if the best account of it, I don't know what the incentive story is. I, I don't know if, there's some sense in that everybody thought that this was serving their interests or if and if presidents thought if I intervene in a case, it's going to be self-defeating for me. I think and I felt that and experienced it as sort of a cultural thing, but the norms were very powerful and they kind of permeated the department, so to speak. Now, how you establish that, why it worked, I don't really have a great answer to that. All I can tell you is it started out with a with a powerful commitment for the first six years after Nixon, and then it kind of took on a life of its own. Every White House, and I think one one part of the story is kind of a I don't know if it's a path dependent story, but or a, just an expectation story. We can use lots of different metaphors or or models, but every White House came up with a context policy uh, about that governed the relationship between the White House and the Justice Department, and it was just came to be expected. Even the Trump administration issued a contacts policy. It just came to be expected. This is what one does in the executive branch. You know, I still think it had, as I said, it was pretty powerful, but it just had no impact on Trump at all. He was just oblivious to this. Now, that's not a great answer. I don't have a, I don't have a perfect answer, but something like that is what happened. So let me build on what you just said about how Trump seemed oblivious to or just did not care about these traditional normative restraints 
on what you're supposed to do. I think some outside observers, and you might agree with this or disagree with this, would suggest that the constraints on subordinates that you describe, though certainly important, maybe have eroded over the course of Trump's four years in office, particularly as more, let's say, establishment Republicans and conservatives were replaced in the latter couple of years with, in, of Trump's terms with more loyalists. But I guess where I want to go with this, and this maybe starts to tie into it's, some of the things that- So I'm not, I want to I yeah. question that in a second, but let's oh, keep going. Please. Yeah, let's that was mostly yeah. an aside, but I'd love you yeah. to challenge yeah. if you think it's not true. The bigger question I was going to ask, and it starts to get into some of the things that you and, and Bob Bauer propose in the book, has to do with what the right response is to this demonstration that it is possible to elect a president who does not care about norms or other traditional informal or non-legal constraints on behavior. One response to this is to say that we need to have much more stringent laws, even if they have non-trivial costs in ordinary times, because we need to design, design a system that can deal with the worst case scenario. In the same way, in a loose analogy, people said about the regulation of financial markets after the 2002-78 crash, you know, all these restraints that we removed because they seem to be creating inefficiencies in normal times left us vulnerable to a crisis. So there's one perspective that says, this is demonstrated that the US is not exceptional, that norms are fragile, and that we need a much more robust and constraining legal and institutional regime. There's another line that says that that might be an overreaction and that at least parts of the Trump experience demonstrate the resilience of norms or the capacity of these kinds of experiences to make those norms more robust. Again, I know the book has a lot of very yeah. specific reform proposals, yeah, can, but on that but macro a great level question. issue, I'd yeah. love to get your response. Yeah, it's a great question. And I don't think there's a simple reductive answer about what's right and what's wrong. And while we don't talk about it that way in the book, we clearly thought about that issue. And there's other restraints. I mean, it's not just a matter of hard and constraining law versus using norms, there's constitutional constraints. And it may be that we should have harder laws in some circumstances, but the Constitution, the U.S. Constitution just doesn't permit it. So, look, our book is, it's not theoretical. I mean, we have some guideposts at the beginning about how we think of executive power, but it does take the view that in some contexts, we need to clamp down on the president with laws, with hard laws that we think should be red lines that presidents can't cross. So we think that no president should be allowed to do what Trump did with regard to tax disclosure, with regard to financial conflict of interest, things like that. Those are soft norms that we think should be hard and enforceable law, because frankly, we, there, there are a few costs to making it hard law, uh, but we think that the benefits and given the obvious uh, corruption and potential corruption of the Trump administration, outweigh the cost there. Another hard constraint that we think is very important, constitutionally controversial, but we think as we propose that it's okay, is we think that the obstruction of justice statute should be specifically applied to the president. Right now, let me just give a little background on this. Right now, there's a prohibition, criminal prohibition on obstruction of justice, of interfering in an ongoing criminal proceeding with the wrong kind of intent. And that's very tricky to apply that to the president because the president controls law enforcement and therefore any attempt to regulate obstruction of justice is going to run into these constitutional prohibitions. But we, and this was a problem for the Mueller report, and it's a problem in general that the country is just kind of, there's just a lack of clarity about whether and when the president can interfere in an ongoing proceeding and when he bumps up against the criminal law. We think that should be clarified. That's another example where uh, we think harder constraints should happen. But on the whole, and I'm, I think this is responsive to what you're saying, but on the whole, 
there's only so much laws can do here for a couple of reasons. One, we worry that too much law, you know, this is an obvious normative problem with executive power, and we don't have a perfect account of this. No one does. But there's a very big danger that the Congress would go too far. So we don't, for example, favor the really strong medicine of making the Justice Department an independent agency. We don't favor stronger medicine on obstruction of justice. There's some harder measures, that, and we just make a practical contextual judgment call about that. But most of the stuff we think, especially with regard to Justice Department, White House relations, need to be done by norms for constitutional reasons. And we think the norms work pretty well. Let me say one more thing, because I'm not answering you in a linear way. There is a great question, how, how should subordinates respond when you have a president like this? What are you supposed to do? I mean, one answer is you should just resign on day one because your job is impossible. If you're the attorney general and you have a president that's done the things Trump does, interfering in ongoing investigations, obviously act in corrupt ways vis-a-vis the Justice Department, it's just extremely difficult to take that job. Even Bill Barr, who many people thought was in Trump's pocket, on a couple of occasions told the president, you have to stop. You're making it impossible for me to do my job because you're coloring everything I do through your political lens, and that makes it hard for me to do anything credibly. So it's a very hard and deep question. And one of the, th- the main thing we're trying to do in the book, one of the main things is assume that we're going to have another President Trump who's more clever and better at wielding executive power in the subtle ways that Trump wasn't good at it, and ask what kind of institutions should be in place to deal with that. That's, that's one of our aims. Whether we got it right, I'm not so sure. But that's a very, very, very tricky thing to do. Let me ask you about some of the more specific proposals that you lay out in the book, because again, one of the things that's so admirable about the book is it's not just abstract in general, but you guys lay out uh, in a series of chapters a a number of very specific, very particular uh, reforms, some of which are more directly pertinent to the corruption issues or the conflict of interest issues than others, but all of them deal with addressing these concerns of a president unconcerned with traditional norms of appropriate behavior. You've mentioned a couple of times the financial conflict of interest concern. And again, I think this may be of especial interest to our listeners, given the focus of our podcast. I have to say that this was one of the more, for me, surprising parts of the book in terms of the recommendations that you lay out, because there had been emerging in the relevant civil society communities and among Democrats in the House of Representatives, for example, a kind of sort of consensus about what legal reform should look like in this area. And it typically involved requiring incoming presidents or perhaps other senior officials to either divest their assets or place them in a blind trust. That is to have some trustee managing their assets, but where the president would not be aware of what particular companies or other investments that the trust had its money in. And so presumably the president would not be tempted to shape policy to favor Um, his or her financial interests. So in the book, you guys not only don't endorse that, but you suggest that that, again, I'll call the emerging conventional wisdom approach would be affirmatively counterproductive and you have an alternative set of suggestions. So I think it would be really helpful and maybe again, especially for our audience to lay out why you think that approach is misguided and to explain the alternative approach you think would be more effective. Yeah. So misguided. We may have said that in the book. We don't favor. First of all, I think there's a general consensus that there's a huge problem here. And, you know, our basic view in the book is that it needs to be addressed. We offer the reasons why we think it should be addressed in a certain way, but we might well be wrong. I mean, really, the book is more about how to setting up these reforms than it is the importance of our particular prescriptions. But we do take 
take a view on this and you, and you can educate me on this because this is not my area of expertise. It's, it's an area of expertise, more of my co-author, but the basic view is that Trump showed and experience shows that blind trusts are easy, easy, easy to evade and easy to circumvent. And we make a strong argument that transparency is important. Now there are downsides of transparency and maybe we underestimate the downsides of the, of transparency, but the basic idea is that we don't think that blind trust should be allowed because we think they're too manipulable as Trump has shown. He set up a trust and he just clearly defied it and there was nothing that could be done about that. Now, maybe you could, you could set up a blind trust and enforce it. As we, we do enforcement provision for president not being involved in supervising the business, but and so maybe you can go that way. We just think that transparency here is the best course because we don't have confidence in blind trust. Now you can tell me what's wrong with that. So what is the conventional wisdom about why a blind trust is the way to go? And I don't so, believe I think divestment is, you know, I think that is too strong of medicine uh, because it would it would really, I mean, I don't mind imposing costs on wealthy people who want to run for higher office, but I but I think divestment for wealthy presidential candidates is very, very tough medicine. Maybe down the road, if these middling reforms, intermediate reforms don't work. But what, what, is, what are the dangers of transparency? What, what is the virtue? And I'm not asking you, I'm asking for the conventional wisdom. So again, I, I wouldn't presume to speak on behalf of the conventional wisdom. I actually haven't studied this issue enough to, to have a strong view about it. I think that the pushback that you might get based on what you just said is that it would be, it's a bit misleading to suggest that what Trump did is anything resembling the sort of blind trust that bills like that proposed by the House Democrats last year, for example, have in mind. Uh, that trust, Trump's trust was managed by his son who gave him quarterly updates in the business. The idea yeah. would be that you don't know what you're invested in. For someone like Trump, that would require presumably divestment of, of at least some of the assets because he knows the Trump hotels are, are known quantities. I think the the thinking, and again, you're right, it, it, there's an interesting tension here between the interest in transparency, knowing exactly what businesses the president is invested in, and the interest in making sure the president, him or herself, doesn't know what businesses the president is invested in. I think the blind, rationale behind the blind trust is that there's some person managing these assets and they're invested in mutual funds or maybe in stocks or bonds or whatever, but the president has no idea what the trustee has invested the assets in. And presumably there are institutional safeguards to prevent the president, I guess, I think along the lines of things that you suggest in the book from asking this person what they're invested in, such that their decisions as president would not be affected by those kinds of financial conflict of interest. But as you guys point out in the book, this, this does mean that if there is circumvention, the public also doesn't know what the president is invested in. So the alternative right. strategy, as I understand it, as you guys suggest, is yeah. prevent the president from consulting or giving advice, but make it clear to everybody what assets the yeah. president is invested in. Another downside to our proposal is that the president would know where his investments are, and therefore he could act and execute policy in ways that favored his businesses. He wouldn't be shut off from that. Of course, it would all be monitored in the public. Everyone could watch it, and we presume that all sorts of pressures would prevent him from doing anything corrupt. And that the, the assumption is clearly that transparency here is corruption-reducing in this context. I get the counter-argument. I just think uh, and again, I'm not an expert on blind trusts, but yes, I didn't suggest that Trump set up a blind trust, but he did set up a trust that he said he wouldn't have any involvement in it. And he clearly had involvement in it. And the kind of assets Trump has, uh, it's going to be, I think it's going to be very hard to keep that blind. 
So you could, again, there, these are combinations of these things. I, the truth is, I don't know. I don't have a strong view about which one of these is right. I'm, we're, Bob is more of an expert in this than I am. It could be that the best combination is complete blindness enforced by with criminal pro- prohibitions if, if the blindness was violated. Uh, it could be that some of these work better for certain kind of asset portfolios than others. We have a general bias in the book, and this is a ground you can criticize this, but we have a general bias in the book in favor of transparency because, again, there are costs to transparency depending on the context, but that allows the political checks to work better. But again, I don't have a strong view about, about why the conventional wisdom is wrong. Well, let me actually pick up on what you just said and ask, the, and ask the question a little bit higher level of generality. I mean, we don't need to get in the weeds of blind trust, but something you just said um, really resonated because it very much came through to me when I was reading the, the book. There's a lot of emphasis, not exclusively, but a lot of emphasis on transparency and political checks and transparency often in the service of political checks. And as someone who studies corruption and, and anti-corruption internationally, Again, that has a great deal of resonance. The leading, most famous anti-corruption organization internationally is called Transparency International. Uh, you know, there's that old uh, line from Justice Brandeis about how sunlight is the best of disinfectants. I feel like you're tapping in to a very powerful, very compelling rationale uh, or strategy for addressing this kind corruption or other forms of misconduct. At the same time, I have to say, in reading the book and seeing over and over the emphasis on you know, various places where instead of an, a, an absolute prohibition, you would put in place measures to ensure greater ca- accountability, excuse me, transparency in the hopes this will facilitate accountability, made me a little bit nervous given the experience we've seen under the Trump administration for a couple of related reasons that I want to flag and that I'd love to hear your response because I'm sure these are issues that you guys have thought about. So the first is whether in the highly polarized, hyper-partisan world we live in, information, more information about possible wrongdoing or even clear wrongdoing by the leader of one of the major political parties will have more than a trivial impact on political support. And again, this is informed not just by the Trump experience, but one of the things that's so sobering to people who study corruption internationally is there are many, many democracies where leaders who are known to be corrupt, who have been previously convicted or have pending criminal charges against them, run for and win elections, Uh, which again, is a reason for concern about how well these checks will operate on someone who is that brazen, who doesn't have any kind of internal sense of shame. The other point that's, that's related, though not necessarily identical, is Some, not all, but some of the kinds of malfeasance we're concerned about have to do with, for lack of a better term, cheating in the electoral process itself. So whether this is the president trying to get foreign governments or his own government to announce criminal investigations of his political rivals or their their relatives, whether it's attempts not so successful under Trump, but again, potentially more successful under a different administration to subvert the independent media or to undermine confidence in the electoral process and so on and so forth, it seems like there's a bit of an internal tension or paradox between uh, when you call for transparency and political checks to address kinds of malfeasance that are all about subverting the efficacy of those political checks. So again, much of what you say is compelling to me. I'm sure you've thought about these issues, but can you say a little bit more about how to resolve those tensions? This This is a great question. And Bob and I talked about this question a lot in writing the book. We say in a couple of places in the first chapter 
that ultimately these, you're absolutely right. And we say it, we're, we're upfront about it. Ultimately, these transparency checks, they're not going to work if the culture, if the political culture completely fragments. Um, that political check, that transparency assumes that the transparency will, through the process of journalism, through the process of electoral concerns, through the process of personal professional concerns and the like, will influence behavior. And you're absolutely right, and we say so, that if things get really bad in terms of, uh, I think, worse than they are today, because I think these mechanisms actually have worked, if they get worse if they get worse than they are now, these transparency will diminish will diminish as an effective mechanism. Hundred percent agree. But here's the problem, and it and you're right to call it to call it a paradox. But we're dealing with a kind of paradoxical, difficult situation because 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 the way our system is structured, we necessarily are going to have to have discretionary judgments made by the Attorney General of the United States. It's impossible, in my judgment, to have a, have a determinate rule without judgment about when a president should or shouldn't be investigated. These are very context-specific judgments, and they're very political judgments, ultimately. So what we try to do is – I can give you the example, for example, about whether the attorney general should open up an investigation on an electoral candidate, a presidential candidate, or a president. Those are some of the most delicate and difficult judgments – they're inherently political in the sense that, that and, and absent the clearest, clearest, crystal clear evidence of crime, which there rarely is, there are going to be judgment calls all the way, both legal and political, and there's going to be after the fact uh, second guessing. So what are your options there? How are you going to deal with that problem? This is, this is the issue. And so we're dealing in a world of second and third best because we, we don't think it's a conceivable route to have an independent, fully independent attorney general. That has enormous costs of its own in terms of the president's ability to – I'm not saying it doesn't happen in other systems. I think in the separation of power system that we have, it's very difficult for that to work, and I don't think it's constitutional. So you're going – you could set up something like the independent counsel statute in the 1970s as a way of getting around this problem. That still had a lot of discretion built into it and it had its own problems of politicization because it had the opposite problem that you're having these most important of decisions made by an unaccountable actor, be it the courts opening the, uh, appointing the independent counsel or the uh, independent counsel himself with super independence. So in that context, we think that these difficult judgments have to be made by the attorney general, but we're all also worried about, and we try to guide the attorney general's discretion as much as we think appropriate, but we're also worried that the attorney general is going to be corrupt. And in that situation, the only check there is literally is the electorate and is the populace and is the Congress. And there's just not another check in that situation within the system that we have. I don't think you can get at it by wringing discretion out of the system and having determinate rules. So that, that's just one context, but I completely agree with you that you should be skeptical about transparency as a full answer to these problems. They're more like backstops and uh, they work or they don't work depending on how fragment, how much of a consensus there is within the, po the polity about why these things are bad. I will say that I think that it worked decently well. Uh, under this administration. I mean, it didn't stop Trump from doing things, but I, you have to have an explanation for why all these people were defying Trump for so often. What is the answer when these things would leak out or with, what were they worried about if these, in effect, norms enforced by transparency weren't, weren't getting the job done? Why didn't they fire Mueller? Why didn't Bill Barr prosecute 
Trump's enemies. Why didn't Barr, um, I mean, Barr violated some Justice Department norms, and we criticized him for that. But on the other hand, he didn't listen to a lot of things the president told him to do. And so anyway, that's a little bit off the point of transparency. But I, I, your point is very well taken. I just don't see what the alternatives are given our, the, our structure of our Constitution. Can I pick up actually on, on that theme? And it, it touches on something you said in, in the course of your response to my last question about the independence or mechanisms to increase the independence of potentially the attorney general or possibly others with law enforcement responsibilities. So you said a couple of things about those possibilities. So again, we're talking Mm -hmm. about protecting the attorney general from being removed before uh, the end of a fixed term without good cause, for example. There's a whole range of proposals that would grant a greater degree of independence from the president or other elected officials or the president's immediate subordinates uh, than, than we currently than currently exists. And as you point out in the book, and as you mentioned here, proposals along those lines have been floated in the United States. There have been experiments with things along these lines in the United States. You mentioned in passing, but I think it's important to emphasize, there are other systems, you know, modern democracies, that have considerably more independence for the institutions that are responsible, especially for criminal law enforcement or for those responsible for investigating high-level corruption. And the states, too. Exactly. And in the course of um, explaining why you don't focus on those kinds of solutions in the context of the United States, you said you pointed to two factors, and I kind of want to pull them apart a little bit and figure okay. out their relevant, relative significance. One okay. is the view that it would be unlawful, that for better or worse, the U.S. Constitution prohibits granting the attorney general, for example, greater independence or creating some kind of standalone ombudsman or anti-corruption body that's not under the president's control. You also suggested that doing that sort of thing, at least in the context of the U.S., would be a bad idea, independent of whether it's lawful or not. Mm -hmm. So I understand the first line of objection. If I took that off the table, if you could wave your magic wand and change Article 2 or change the way the current Supreme Court is likely to interpret Article 2, can you unpack a little bit more why you think those kinds of solutions to create greater independence by those officials or entities charged with enforcing the laws against especially high-level, powerful political people is a bad idea as opposed to just an unlawful idea? Yeah. So it really depends on what that – I can give you a general answer. It depends on what that institution, that independent institution looks like. It depends on what its jurisdiction is, how broad it is. I think the answers fall into um, – and again, my answer would – might be adjusted depending on what type of independent entity we're talking about and what kind of jurisdiction it has. There are two types of answers. One is that our experience with that in this country has not been a good one. Uh, we had we had something along those lines from 1978, I think it was, until 1999 with the post-Watergate Independent Council statute where we had about as independent as one could get under our constitutional system in terms of ha- having courts appoint under certain criteria who the prosecutor was and having that prosecutor have pretty good independence from the uh, attorney general. And the consensus was that after 22 years of practice, it was a, it was by, had bipartisan support in 1977. And by 1999, it was, there was bipartisan support for getting rid of it. And the costs of it were, lack of accountability for the prosecutor, lack of control for the prosecutor, that it was more, it, it, it 
politicize the law enforcement process more rather than less than if it were done inside the attorney general's office. I can't remember if I said, yeah, I did say lack of accountability or lack of controls at all. Uh, so that that's one thing. And I'll come back and talk about that in a second. The second idea is depending on what the, what the scope of this independence is. And this was the main reason why the kind of progressive wise men in the 1970s came out against the proposal to make the justice department independent is that the president's control over law enforcement has been a font of progressive justice for you know, decades and decades and decades, and is also a means through which the democracy speaks, that there's that law enforcement is properly and appropriately politicized, not, I shouldn't say politicized, political, and it needs to be and should be under democratic control and respond to the election. So if a president of the United States wants to be really aggressive and using the criminal tools to do one thing and not the other, that's something that we think should be controlled by uh, the democracy. Now, one response to that is that you could just, just make it narrow, just make this independence narrow, just make it about top-level corruption. And, and my answer to that is basically the experience of 22 years under the uh, independent counsel statute. Now, I don't know. We have a lot of very fine-grained and in-the-weeds proposals about how to fix the special counsel regulations that succeeded that, but that's the main answer. I, what I don't know the answer to is why that was such a disaster. Is it something about our legal culture that makes us different from other cultures? Is it something about the incentives that the special counsel had? I don't actually know the answer to that question, but we basically have a, a normative commitment to enhancing accountability of law enforcement. We actually call for giving the attorney general more power over the special counsel in some respects, legal control tempered by this accountability constraint. But anyway, that's a, that's a long winded, but that's the basic answer. Great. So I want to ask about a related topic. Um, it's a little bit different, though, and it was a, another one of the parts of the book that was most striking to me, because one of the great things about this book is that although you and your co-author served in administrations of different political parties and presumably have uh, different views on many issues, you really find a lot of common ground in terms of addressing the institution of the presidency and its regulation. I think it's a terrific thing about the book. I love the fact that in the book you emphasize what you call your golden rule, which is when we think about um, what kinds of restraints we would want. Always imagine what if the, the other party controls the presidency, which is great. There was one bit in the book where it seemed that you and your co-author diverged, or at least that yep. was how I read it. And yep. that has to do with an issue that's relevant not only right now in the United States, but many of our international listeners will be very familiar with, which is what's the right approach when a new administration comes into power and the outgoing administration, including its most senior leadership, is believed to be, there's evidence that they were extremely corrupt or engaged in other forms of very significant wrongdoing. What, if anything, should the new administration do about those allegations of extremely serious corruption in the previous administration? And again, I want to get to, I want to ask this to you in a moment, but just, just to highlight the degree to which this is an issue that comes up all the time in a bunch of different contexts. In Mexico right now, the new president, Lopez Obrador, took a lot of flack for suggesting that he was going to direct his administration not to look into grand corruption by the previous administrations, that were going to turn the page and only look ahead. Um, we've seen the same pattern in a number of other countries as well. Um, and you know, there's this concern that once you get into this vicious cycle of every administration jailing the you know, members of the previous administration or its rival political party, then that, that way badness lies. On yeah. the other hand, the, the, the outcry over Lopez Obrador's 
announcement comes from a very understandable place, which is that in countries that have had these very traumatic episodes of high-level corruption or wrongdoing, the idea that those people are not held accountable, that they have a kind of de facto impunity from very serious wrongdoing upsets people and suggests that these kinds of serious uh, malfeasance don't have significant consequences, which could undermine deterrence as well as erode the norms that we've discussed are, as, as so important to the long-run operation of the system. So uh, again, you and your co-author seem to part ways, yep. at least to some degree on this. So I think you agree on the trade-offs, maybe come down to slightly yep. different places. Can yes. you just for our listeners who haven't had a chance to read the book yet, elaborate yep. on your yep. take on how to manage this tension? Yes. So basically you just laid it out. I mean, it's a standard set of trade-offs and a standard set of difficulties about the, and if there are costs on both sides about, and I'll, I'll go through it in a little bit of detail, but there, there are costs of not holding the prior administration accountable. There are costs to the rule of law, costs to norms and incentives for the next president. But there are also enormous costs from investigating and prosecuting the prior administration because of the pattern that it sets about what we think about transfers of power in a democracy and because it's enormously disruptive to the polity. But of course, not doing it is disruptive also. So so I will just say at the outset that I think this is an extremely difficult problem. One piece of evidence of how difficult it is is just before I came to have this conversation, I just read a news report where President-elect Biden says where there were four people who, uh, unnamed people in close age, who said he really doesn't want to have a full-blown distracting investigation of Trump. But he said, and then he said, in violating norms that he's about to assume, supposed to be complying with, but it's going to be the Justice Department's call. I'm going to leave it to them. In which case, he probably shouldn't have commented on it, but that's, he captured both sides of this. So in a nutshell, here's what Bob thinks, and then here's what I think. It's basically just applying what you said to the Trump situation. So a little bit of detail for the readers, for the listeners who don't know about our constitutional system or aren't experts on executive uh, legal interpretation. There's a standard standing set of ex- a rule in the executive branch that the president of the United States cannot be indicted or prosecuted while in office. And so that's just that's just right now an accepted part of our so – the president can't be indicted. That rule may change. Possible the Biden administration will change that, but then a Republican administration could change it back. It's an executive branch interpretation. Bob's basic view is, is that if there was real criminal wrongdoing here, you're basically giving saying that the president is above the law if he can't be prosecuted after he leaves office for crimes he committed in office. And that that is just a huge cost of the rule of law, which creates terrible disincentives and means that these terrible acts are not held accountable. That's his basic view in a nutshell, with which I largely agree. But my concerns are not what I would call principled, but they're kind of pragmatic and they're contextual. I worry, first of all, I don't, it's not at all clear to me that Trump has committed a prosecutable crime. I think it's practically impossible. As a practical matter, I think it's impossible or near impossible to prosecute him for obstruction of justice under the statutes as they're currently written. That's one of the reasons why we suggest reforming those statutes. Secondly, I think that the costs to, and this is basically what Biden suggested today, the cost to the the administration of the distraction costs, the, the cost to the Justice Department of being that at a time when it's trying to appear less political, of being vengeful and political, even if it's the an investigation that's full of integrity, it's going to look that way. I think it's ultimately bound to fail. And therefore it might, and I think probably would. And these are all predictive judgments about which I could be wrong. I think it would probably end in failure. And what norm does that establish? 
And I'm especially, and I'll just say two other things, because it's basically the same trade-off that you discussed. I'll just say two other things. One is you said that it means if he's not prosecuted, he's not held accountable. And I don't think, I think this is actually a mistake. I don't, I don't think you've committed it, but I think it's a common mistake in this area. Accountability is not exhausted by criminal prosecution. There are lots of forms of accountability, including losing an election. I mean, it remains to be seen what's going to happen to Trump after he gets out of office. I do fear that an attempted prosecution will elevate his status, keep him in the public eye. I think that would help Trump in some sense. Um, but there are other forms of accountability besides criminal prosecution. I think it's entirely appropriate, for example, for Congress to have hearings under the guise of presidential reform and to learn as much as we can about what happened in the Trump administration. To the extent that clear criminal violations arose from that, I doubt they will. Uh, I'm, not in, I'm not in principle opposed to prosecuting a president for things that happened in office, but they have to be clear legal, clear legal violations, which is one of the reasons that we propose uh, reforms to some of the law to clarify that the president can violate the law in some of these areas. And the last thing I'll say, and I'm sorry I've gone on so much, is that there are two sets of proceedings right now against Trump, one in federal court uh, in the Southern District of New York and one in state court for crimes that Trump committed allegedly and the Trump organization committed before the presidency. I have no problem with those. What I'm concerned about, and I didn't talk about in this context, but I'm also concerned about the precedent that this just becomes what we do. There are a lot of people in the Republican side that think Barack Obama committed crimes in office. I don't think that, but a lot of people that do. We just had a controversial thing, still not over, with Barr using the criminal process to investigate the investigators from the last administration. I think this is a terrible pattern, and I think it will end up hurting the country, and I think we should avoid it absent the most cle the clearest of evidence of presidential crime. Let me pick up on that to ask about another suggestion that I've heard floated. I don't think you guys talked about it explicitly in your book, although it relates to what you just said about congressional hearings. There's the Truth Commission model yep. that I've heard. I don't know how mainstream this is, but I've certainly seen some suggest that the right approach is not necessarily to pursue a traditional criminal investigation or to rely on legislative hearings, congressional hearings, which might be very partisan and that it's not really that well equipped to do fact finding, but there's the creation of some kind of a bipartisan truth commission with yeah. some certain powers to produce a kind of definitive report. Nothing is ever definitive, but a, but a, you know, a reasonably prominent and authoritative report on the nature of the either illegal or at least ethically questionable conduct of the Trump administration do you have a view on that? I mean, yes. does that kind of split the difference and give us a little bit of the best of both worlds? Does that kind of do the opposite and give us all the problems of ongoing attention and recrimination without any of the payoff of, of legal accountability? So I think that, that the, a truth commission idea is that I think it's a poor substitute for what I just suggested, which is a congressional investigation. The reason is it goes back to what you talked about, the polity being fragmented. How are we going to put together this bipartisan commission that's going to be credible to the populace? I just think that that's a kind of precondition for a truth and, Recon truth and reconciliation commission idea to work. And I think, especially in the context of Trump, it's just impossible to generate that. I think the least bad context for that is a context where you have a majority, it probably have to happen in the House, where you have a majority by one party where you, that is contra Trump, where they're going to give him a full-blown review of what happened. And you also have a, a party on the other side that's going to give the best case for the other side. I think something like that, I mean, the, the model for this is the Senate Intelligence Committee looking into the, uh, a model for this is the Senate Intelligence Committee looking into the um, 
uh, in election interference or the Iran-Contra by uh, commission in Congress that that looked into the Iran-Contra scandal, had a majority and minority report, but all the facts came out. I do think we need to have a factual reckoning. It will happen in books and memoirs and journalism, and I think it should and will happen in Congress. But I just don't have any confidence that in this context on this issue, we can establish a, a credible Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And I'm not sure that's a good precedent either because we'll just have a Truth and Reconciliation Commission for every administration going forward if there's the political capability in Congress to put it together. So this is great. I know you've already been very generous with your time. I don't want to hold you for too much longer, but there was one more thing I, I definitely want to ask you about that I believe is outside the scope of the book, although I might have missed it. Um, but it very much relates to themes that you've discussed, and it has to do with the professional civil service or the career people inside government. And as you know, because you're a student of the presidency and the executive branch, there's a long-running debate or conversation about how much control the president should have over the composition of the government bureaucracy, how much power the president or the president's political appointees should have to remove people who wield significant authority. And my question is motivated in part by this executive order that you probably are aware of that Trump issued yeah. shortly before the election, transferring potentially a very large number of positions, though we're not sure how many would be covered, from the so-called competitive service, the merit system, to, uh, to politically appointed positions. Basically, anybody under the terms of the executive order who not only has policy making has a policy making function, but anyone who gives policy advice or handles confidential information, which is a very large number of people, I understand, yep. moved yep. from the so-called merit system or competitive service into a new exempt category. And I don't want to get down in the weeds of U.S. civil service rules. I'm glad because I don't, I don't know the weeds of the law, but go ahead. But I, but I saw this and I was really concerned yep. um, because it seems like one of historically one of the main bulwarks against the corruption of the U.S. government has been a merit-based civil service. I mean, going back to the post-Jacksonian, post-Civil War reforms that created such a thing, um, you emphasize, again, it's not, this was not your main focus, but you talked about the extent to which people in the government would be committed to certain professional norms that didn't have necessarily to do with loyalty to party. A lot of those people were not necessarily civil servants in the technical sense, but they had a sense that they were like career people, not political people. How much is that something that we should also worry about maybe going forward? Again, Trump issued this executive order in the last couple months of his administration, but he even thought about it. Someone like him could issue a similar executive order in the first month of an administration. Is there, do you perceive a maybe not yet exploited to the maximum extent weakness in the US system with respect to just how easy it would be to subvert the traditional safeguards for the uh, career bureaucracy? Uh, if not, why not? And if so, do you have some suggestions, maybe in the spirit of your book, if not literally contained in your book, for how to address that kind of problem? Yeah, I'm afraid I'm going to give a disappointing answer here because I should know more about this than I do. I have a couple of things to say, though. One, and I basically share your concern. Whatever problems there are in the bureaucracy, and however, in fact, it may be politically slanted one way or another, I think the civil service protections and the uh, executive service is absolutely vital to the running of the government. I mean, I experienced this when I came into the Office of Legal Counsel there, and, and both in my office and in other offices, 
who were formally non-political and uh, had the experience of decades and decades uh, of, of operation in the executive branch, it's absolutely vital to the stability of these institutions. And if politics pushed down too far, that would be corrupted. And I think it would just be terrible for the legitimacy of these institutions in operation. So without being an expert, I, I was very concerned for the same reasons you were about what Trump proposed to do. I doubt, and again, I'm not an expert, I doubt he's going to be able to pull this off in any meaningful way by January 20th, but I could be wrong about that. But let me say something else, though. There were instances, and we talked about this in the chapter, where the bureaucracy was too big for its britches, so to speak. And there were instances, and this is a danger on the other side, and it's like everything else. It's a trade-off, and there's no perfect, obvious uh, equilibrium point that you can kind of put into rigid law. But there were times where um, certain very important decisions, in my judgment and in my co-author's judgment, should be made by political appointees. And there were times in which the career bureaucrats kind of took matters into their own hands and didn't inform their political superiors about things they were doing because they thought it was more legitimate to have uh, these decisions made by so-called non-political bureaucrats. And that is its own kind of danger. And we so, and we don't approve of that. And, and, and this affected the legitimacy for many people of the Mueller investigation and, and related investigations. So I don't think the bureaucracy acted perfectly uh, but I think those, but but I also wouldn't fundamentally change it. And I think the bureaucracy needs to have needs to be largely independent, or at least not political. But I think it also needs to have a political overlay. There's an enormous literature that you know more, more about than I do, and an enormous history about how to maintain that balance between the political people at the top and the non-political people that form the bulk of the bureaucracy, and exactly how to uh, how to make both parts of that work and how to achieve that balance. And so that all I can say is I kind of favor the way things are now, but I would like to have I wouldn't I don't favor what Trump proposed to do. Great. So um, one final big picture question uh, and then we'll wrap up. And it's a bit of an unfair question because I think it was Yogi Berra said prediction is hazardous, especially when it's about the future. Um, but I did want to get your sense in closing of your level of optimism or pessimism about the future of the U.S. government or U.S. institutions' ability to address the problem of high-level presidential wrongdoing. So again, the book is very much in the spirit of advancing concrete proposals and starting a conversation about how to address these problems. Another purpose of the book, which it serves very effectively, is diagnosing the extent of those problems. Where are you now in terms of how optimistic or pessimistic uh, you are about the ability of the U.S. system to react in a productive way to the experience of the last four years and address some of these concerns? I mean, are you cautiously optimistic that we'll learn from this experience and make things better? Or do you really worry that we're gonna leave things as they are and be vulnerable to Trump 2.0? I think, so I don't, I'm sorry, I don't have a simple answer to that because there are you know six or seven dozen reform proposals in the book. If, this, if you're asking me, am I optimistic that some of the reforms can be made? I, I, I don't see I think some things will be changed. I think the conflict of interest rules, whether it's our proposal or the, what you said was the standard view about blind trusts, I think that there's, there's just zero reason why that should be subject to norms. I think that will become over the next four years. I think no matter who, maybe I'm naive about this, but I think no matter what the configuration of Congress, I think that there should be a bipartisan consensus that we should not have uh, presidents being governed by norms in that context. Same thing about tax disclosure, I predict, although I could be wrong about that. I'm somewhat optimistic that 
the most grotesque forms of financial corruption committed by Trump that we can do something about. But other things, I think, you know, we have some proposals on the pardon power, but the truth is they're at the very edges of the pardon power, trying to trying to clamp down on the on the most grotesque of abuses of the pardon power, including a self-pardon. But that's an area where I'm not optimistic that we're going to be able, absent a constitutional amendment that I don't think is going to happen, to, I think we can eliminate corruption at the margins, but abuse, the large levels of abuse that don't rise to a corruption, I don't think that that's going to be eliminated. I'm not terribly optimistic that we're going to make a lot of substantive progress on what we talk about in part two, which is rule of law stuff. And the reason is, I actually think, as I said, that there's less of a problem here in reality than there is in appearance. I just don't think, I think the problem is, the central problem is the Justice Department and law enforcement in this country has become so deeply tied into politics that everything that any Justice Department does that remotely impacts politics is going to seem corrupt to the other half of the country. And as long as that's the case and we don't have a consensus on right action in that context, I think fixing that, I think that fixing that problem is going to be hard. And I think it's just inevitably very hard. We've never had a great solution within our constitutional system. We were talking about it earlier for how to deal with the problem of you know, serious wrongdoing and criminality at the very top of the executive branch. I mean, who's, how are we going to be sure that the guardians watch the guardians? We just, within our system, don't have a great answer to that. I haven't studied enough how other countries do that. That process is invariably going to be very, very controversial. It was even controversial in the Nixon context until the very end when uh, the nation kind of swung behind the the, uh, special prosecutor. So I'm not, despite the fact that you know, I spent many, many dozens and maybe hundreds of hours working on part two of the book, and I think that those proposals would make things better about the reality of the integrity of law enforcement. I think the appearance problem is going to be with us, especially in an era when there's so much government by executive branch decree that I'm not optimistic that, that will be fixed. So a, a mixed note on which to end our conversation. Uh, thank you so much, Jack. Thank you, Matthew. It was very hard and very good questions. So it's a wonderful, really so generous with your time. Uh, again, this has been uh, the most recent episode of Kickback, the Global Anti-Corruption Podcast. My guest has been Jack Goldsmith, who is the author most recently uh, with Bob Bauer of After Trump, which I highly recommend to anyone who's interested uh, not only in addressing the problems of abuse of executive power in the United States, but globally as well. There's a ton of fascinating, fascinating material in the book. Uh, I should also say, Jack, I'm especially glad to have the opportunity to, to speak with you on this because uh, you've been so much of an influence on me and my own work in corruption and anti-corruption, uh, a mentor to me when I was a, an up-and-coming faculty member, and uh, you were the one who really encouraged me to start blogging and do things like this podcast. So uh, it's, uh, I'm especially grateful to have the opportunity to speak with you today. And I hope we have the opportunity for many more conversations in the months and years to come. Thank you, Matthew. I love your blog and thank you very much for those kind words. I really enjoyed this conversation. That's it. Another episode of Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, please tell your friends and colleagues about us and leave a rating wherever you get your podcast. It really helps others to find the show. Until next time. <laughs>